This is Orson Welles. I've spoken these words before, but not on the radio. To be born free is to be born in debt. To live in freedom without fighting slavery is to profiteer. Bring you Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy, and Mortimer Snurd, and Charlie's special guest, Orson Welles. Wake up, America, and stop the experts. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to our show of shows, the podcast about old-time radio. I'm Dan Howland, and I'm joined for what must be, oh, nearly the sixth time in a row yes. by my friend Tom Higgins. Hi, Tom. Always. Past that. Yes, six. Oh, I knew you were going to dive into that right away. Every episode, we choose an old-time radio series, or in this case, personality. And we try to come to grips with it, and we try to give newbies to old-time radio some entry points where they could start listening. And our subject for this week is a big one. Oh, it's yeah. Orson Welles. The man, the myth. The man, the myth, the lies, the fibs, the half-truths. And beautifully enough, he actually tells you right up front. Here are the lies. I'm going well, to tell you those, a lie now. <laughs> more or less. I, I have a couple quotes. Um, before we get into this, I read, um, oh, what was it called? Road to Xanadu by Simon Cowell, which is, I think it's a three-part It's a three part biography. And okay. Road to Xanadu is the first years of Orson's uh, career. And these are quotes from interviews with Orson. He says, if you try to probe, I'll lie to you. 75% of what I say in interviews is false. I think the self is a kind of enemy. My work is what enables me to come out of myself. I like what I do, not what I am. And then in another interview in the 60s, he said, I don't want any description of me to be accurate. I want it to be flattering. And that was that was why when we were researching this, I would learn something new and get all excited, and then I would read some more from another source other than Orson, and I would find out that what Orson said was 75% exactly. untrue. Yeah. yeah, right. So oh, there's always a kernel of truth in Orson's version of events, but we're going to try to talk about his radio career, and we're going to give the man a chance to speak for himself, but for himself, but... Uh, if you're new to Orson Welles, be aware that he's a great big fibber. And in in a way, he's like another person we're going to spotlight in a future episode. He's a storyteller. And the line yes. between his story and the stories he's telling are blurred. I'm Orson, talking about Gene Shepard because Shep would do that all the time. Right. Well, that's why um, Orson was such a great talk show guest into the 60s and 70s was because Always, yeah. he, could, he could tell great anecdotes – and, uh, you know, the truth was not that important on the Carson show. And so. personally, that is my first introduction to Orson was him on the Mike Douglas show being <laughs> trapped in my grandmother's house, you know, with the old ladies watching the Mike Douglas with the, with the Charo and the Xavier Cougar. And, mm -hmm. and then Orson would come on and it was like, holy crow. Who is this guy? He would just start telling this story and he had this attitude of like, I don't care if you believe me. I'm here. Mm -hmm. You are blessed for me to be here. Right. <laughs> and and he was I was a big kid and he was a big older fella. So mm -hmm. the big guy thing, we had a bond going on there. There's a there's a bit of a role model for you. 
Well, let's uh, let's start at the very beginning. Orson was born on May 6th, 1915. His name at the time was George Orson Welles, and he was born in Kenosha, Wisconsin, of all places. Wow. I've just And he occasionally referred to himself as the kid from Kenosha. Um, but he tended not to enjoy his humble origins because he had a pretty lofty view of himself. Um, <laughs> yeah. In... In 1926, he entered the Todd Seminary for Boys in Woodstock, Illinois, and I was surprised to learn that that was where he performed in his first radio play. Apparently, in the 1920s, this very posh school for boys actually had a radio transmitter, and Orson performed an adaptation of Sherlock Holmes when he was just a kid. And to foreshadow some stuff, that is yes. also the last thing he does on the radio. That's pretty nearly much. the last thing. Yeah, it's pretty close. So um, in the 1930s, the early 1930s, his father died, and he used part of this inheritance that he got to travel through Europe. I think he'd already traveled through Europe as a child with his parents. Yeah. But he, he went by himself, and then um, he was there for a few years and he was doing a lot of acting jobs. And then he returned to the States from London when he couldn't get a permit to uh, be an actor there. I don't know what the, if it was like a actor's guild card or something like that, but he couldn't get that. So he returned and then became uh, a stage director. And he was like the boy wonder stage director. And we're going to try not to focus too much on his, stage work because that's a whole separate part of his career and it is a, it is a really deep part but it is a part that even his movies even his future stuff everything gets colored by his stage stuff even the and there's a stuff. certain there's a certain amount of overlap because he did uh a production of julius caesar Yes. Um, in modern dress. So it was set in, uh, was it set in fascist Italy? I think it was. It w I, I don't know if it was. Fascist set Italy in modern dress, I think. Yeah. Or, you know, and so that was how he adapted Julius Caesar. And then, of course, he did Julius Caesar uh, shortly after on the radio because he already had an adaptation ready to go. Um, anyway, he got his first job on the radio on something called the American School of the Air. Which, man, I wish we had copies of because that I, sounds amazing. Well, there's a there's he met um, one of the actors who became one of the Mercury players, uh, Joseph Cotton, who was a lifelong friend of his. Uh, they met, I think they met a couple of times just in passing because they were both actors doing whatever job came out on the radio. Yeah, it was both that guys. This they were both guys, crew, yeah. Right. They could they could show up. They could read their lines cold, and so the two of them did this American School of the Air, and there was an episode that involved, um, I think it was ancient Rome. Oh yes. And they were the two of them were the the script had a lot of uh, unintentional double entendre in it, like oh my, your spear is long, and yes, I throw it over my shoulder, and all these kind of things. Where <laughs> the two of them started giggling. But then they came to a line which was barrels and barrels of pith. And at that point, the two of them lost it and became close friends because how could you say the word pith on the radio? And barrels not, of pith. Not barrels of pith. And they started giggling. Um, so that was 1934 was his first job on the radio. In 1935, he did something called the March of Time 
1936, he did another thing called The Wonder Show. And he was doing, at, by this point, by 1936, he was doing a ton of radio acting. Um, he was known as someone who could just show up. You could hand him a script. You could say, you're a 80-year-old Chinese guy. Go. Yeah. And he would just start reading. He and he has a he needed no rehearsal. He he could just show up and do pretty well. He has a great bit on, I think it's the Carson, one of the Carson shows that he was on, where he talks about just running into the building in the last five minutes and they just hand him a script. And yeah, he's going up the elevator going, okay, right. now I'm this. Now, right. By the time he, he gets uh, to the top. The other ready. thing was the story that he tells. And again, uh, the, the only source I really have on this is Orson. So it is possibly not true is that he found out that uh, you can the only vehicle you can drive at a breakneck speed through New York without getting pulled over is an ambulance. So he hired an ambulance and a driver to drive him around from studio to studio yes. across New York City he said to get once, him to his appointments. He said uh, the, the big thing he keeps repeating is once he found out you didn't have to be sick, or in danger. Right, yeah. To, to actually have one hired to get you someplace. He just went through that loophole. And right. I've actually heard that corroborated among several different sources. So I think that was, I, I mean, you, you, I, wanted, accept I that want one that is, to be true. Okay, we'll accept that one as true. Yeah. Then. He considered most of this work that he was doing um, just hack work. He wasn't terribly interested in radio at this stage. Um, he was, it was good money. And he did it because he was doing these theatrical productions like the uh, all-black cast of Macbeth and the modern dress version of Julius Caesar and that sort of thing. So part of it was he could support a lavish lifestyle and still do these theatrical productions, which is and, where his heart really was at the time. And was even, in the theater. even today in New York, um, if you're in the theater, you take – the cruddiest jobs possible and you just make the best of it. Oh just yeah. Get yeah. Your That's pay. why when you watch YouTube, you'll see these actors that you love and you'll see them doing, you know, commercials in the eighties, you know, for insurance companies or Maalox or something, you know, a, a popular thing back in the eighties was telemarketing. A yeah. lot of, a lot of broad, a lot of uh, theater people would go do telemarketing because they were using their voice and they would put on little acts mm -hmm. and they would sell you weekly reader books. <laughs> I, I know this because I worked with a bunch of them back in <laughs> one of my first jobs after high school. Um, in 1937, uh, Orson did Macbeth for CBS, um, and that was a very big production and typically chaotic for Orson. Um, Orson was known for his studio, live studio work, just being insane and crazy. And for Macbeth, he decided that he was going to bring a bagpiper into the studio. And his musical arranger did not like this idea. His musical arranger was Bernard Herrmann, who you probably know is a great film composer. Yeah. Um, and it just completely screwed up all the music cues. Um, there's an old PDQ Bach joke about the time that PDQ Bach wrote a piece for bagpipe and lute. And <laughs> that when the, when the bagpipe is playing, you can't hear anything else. And when the lute is playing in the same room as another instrument, you can't hear it. So, Obviously, Bernard Herrmann just uh, was 
peeved at him. Um, I have another uh, longer thing from that uh, Road to Xanadu book that I wanted to read about Orson's studio sure. techniques. Yeah. At noon, he arrived in the studio and all hell broke loose. Richard Barr, in his unpublished memoir, describes the scene. Orson did not direct his shows, he conducted them. Standing on a podium in front of a dynamic microphone to diminish his sibilant S, he waved his arms, cued every music, sound, and speech cue. And someone named Paul Stewart described the aftermath of the final dress rehearsal was absolute chaos, absolute chaos every week. Wells is a very destructive man. He has to destroy everything and then put it back together again himself. Then suddenly someone would say, we're on the air in two minutes. The ground was strewn with paper that we got on the air at all was a weekly miracle because it was always like that. Yeah. And you assembled a little clip of uh, – this is from the Julius Caesar. Julius uh, Caesar, yeah. In it's from the dress rehearsal. It's, yeah, they would do a dress rehearsal, I guess, in the afternoon. And this was when Orson was just tearing things out and, and forcing people to do things a different way because he was mercurial. Hence, I guess, the name Mercury Theater. <laughs> I don't know if that was the reason, but <laughs> well, we'll anyway, go with it, that. It, yeah. it, we'll go with it. It works. Um, anyway, here's the clip of, of Orson directing living actors in Shakespeare. Did every noise be still? Oh, no. Caesar paused for a moment, and then, as the voice was still... Quiet in the studio. And gentle friends, let's carve him. High above the heads of the people... Don't look at me! Go ahead! A golden throne had look been set for Caesar... Mark Antony. Were you cue people? I'm not running this show. Mr. Captain. I have no such answer. Ketka. Louder. Can you see your face? For always, I am Caesar. No production there. No press or anything. I wouldn't direct any living actor in Shakespeare like this. <laughs> you know, prophetic we, words. We know, yeah, we know exactly we, how Orson directed actors and, in Shakespeare. And this is a great example. I went through the whole thing. I went through the whole hour production. Mm -hmm. And these are just the highlights of the stuff you can hear. If you mm -hmm. really, if you go, if go you've been a fly on the wall, I mean, Orson was probably tearing pages out and. Oh, if you listen to it, on the if you listen to it and you turn up the volume and you really mm -hmm. listen, you hear a steady, almost nonstop muttering, and really? it's Orson just saying things like "No, oh no," and you can't find <laughs> out what he's making, but it just doesn't stop until he mm -hmm. has to speak his Brutus. Yeah, I think this was a period in radio where the networks wanted to class up the joint a little bit. Absolutely. They needed to. They needed they to needed get some to legitimacy. Because they had so much junk on the radio at the time. So they would have these people like Orson. Well, there was nobody like Orson, but you know what I mean. They would have classier shows and they would run them as what they called sustaining programs, which meant that they had no advertisers. At that point, I guess around that same time in 1937, the Mutual Radio Network, which is probably best known for the Lone Ranger. They were the serial machine. Yeah, they, they, they pumped yeah. out serial after serial. Right. He was given the assignment of doing uh, Le Miserable by um, Victor Hugo. So Orson did this seven-episode adaptation, which meant he had like three and a half hours of radio time to adapt this novel. And 
the novel's huge, of course. And if you've ever read it, it goes into the Napoleonic Wars. You know, there's there's tons and tons of material. And in fact, if you go online and you start reading, uh, how do, how should I read La Mis? Like people, people will start asking, can I skip all this Napoleonic war stuff? Do I need all this to understand the story? So Orson had three and a half hours of, um, transcribed. I don't think this was done live. I'm, I'm pretty sure it wasn't because I'm pretty sure sure mostly everything from mutual was transcribed. Yeah, it was transcribed. So it was that, and that means pre-recorded if you're not, uh, not a big old time radio fan. Uh, a lot of the stuff had to be live on the radio at the time. There's a certain percentage I think had to be live yep. for various reasons. So he did this and it, it's really good. I highly recommend his Miserables. It's really excellent. And he was like, what, how old was he? 21 or something? Um, when he did this? In 37. Yeah. He would be about. Yeah. Yeah. So he just was, about. Yeah. Yeah. What was I doing at that age? I'd rather not conjecture not um, not adapting les mis into a seven no. part or six part series no no i might have been yeah <laughs> might have been reading the uh classics illustrated version there um, you go. all right so we have a clip of les miserables from orson wells javert yes i'm going to ask you something more something i know you won't permit Cosette. I've been with her all these years. She's she's very dear to me. May I say goodbye to her? Driver. The Rue de l'Armée. Number seven. Here's your home. Go up and see her. What are you waiting for? I'm waiting for you. I'll be here, below in the street. Then, then you trust me? I'll wait in the street. Jean Valjean ran up the stairway to Cosette's little room. He stopped at the landing and looked back through the window. He was bewildered by what he did not see. There was nobody in the street. Javert was gone. And that is the final confrontation scene with yeah. uh, with Javert. And uh, it's pretty well handled. I mean, you know, the voices are a little over melodramatic. That, but that, was, that was the staging that for was the time. The, that, that was, was over era, time. Yeah. And that was the stage. But uh, it's it's a really excellent adaptation, and if if uh, if you have three and a half hours, or <laughs> or, or, or just no no or a half a hour days. every day, I mean you can yeah. really treat this stuff like the way you would a podcast. It's it's a really really good adaptation. The I fact that, that it was lot. done on, and the to... fact that he had enough time to stretch out and do every major incident in the novel. Yeah, was... it, it, he touched on pretty much everything, and the fact that it got on mutual which was not the radio station or the broadcasting system you would think of to do something like them is. No. And it was telling that it was telling that after he did that, he then went and did one of their more typical mutual shows. Yeah, then he got then he got a regular gig, which was playing the shadow, which is um a 
really, really crummy show. Okay, I mean, it's fondly, it's very fondly remembered. It is fondly remembered, and 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 no more fondly than by Orson Welles himself, who seems to remember the whole experience as. Him being Lamont Cranston for what did he say thirty years or something? So some oh, so, I, he, you 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 may be exaggerating a little more than Orson. It, at maybe that he point, said but, like ten or twenty but, years or something. But it was like yeah, it, he actually thought in his head that he played Lamont Cranston, even though there were other actors who did it. He was the the franchise. Yeah, and he had little tiny part of it. Yeah, he played the shadow for a year year and a half two years i don't know um and he it's really funny because while orson has a very resonant voice it's also very nasal and And that's not the shadow yeah and so the funniest thing about orson's shadow is the laugh which you know everybody remembers the shadow going (laughs) you know one of those big villainous kind of laughs he's a he's a He's one of those contradictory heroes like like Batman where, you know, he's heroic, but he's not lighthearted. You know, he's he's a dark character. Yeah. But Orson's version of the Shadow's laugh just came out <laughs> like a witch cackling or something. Inconceivable. It's, yes, right. <laughs> it was, it was, oh, God, I'm going to yeah. fluff the actor's name. Um, Dick Sean? Mm-hmm. No. Hmm? The actor who was in Princess Bride who did Inconceivable. My dinner with Andre Wallace Shawn. Wallace Shawn, yeah, yes, yeah. So he had oh, more of a Wallace Shawn voice than uh, Wallace yeah. Shawn laughed in the shadow. Yes, sometimes, yeah. But you know, Orson had a very resonant voice. It's just that there was a lot of nasal in it as well. So, you can take well, the kid um, out of Kenosha. <laughs> kid, yeah, exactly. So we have a we have another clip of uh, Orson talking here uh, with Peter Bodanovich, who. Uh, a famous film director who was his friend, his friend, and was interviewing him about his radio years because Badanovich was going to write a biography and try to make it as true to Orson's, <laughs> Orson's Which God beliefs. Bless him. Uh, yeah, right. That, and and he that, that's to- a thankless task because eventually Orson got peeved at him and, you know, said you can't do it and it took years before they reconciled and became friends again but anyway this is a little interview about what happens when you're in your 20s and you're living the high life in new york and you're doing dozens and dozens of radio shows constantly this is a little story about what happens then i had a daily radio show at 12 o'clock when i was the voice of cornstarch which Obviously, there need be no comment. And it was a 15-minute program on right across the board on CBS for the makers of one of these, you know, Crisco and all those kind of things. They had an orchestra, and the orchestra played sweet music for the housewives. And one of the three numbers, there was music, music, and then I read a poem, and then there was music. And I got... 50 bucks each time and it was terribly nice money to have because I just turned up five minutes ahead of time and read a poem and ran away with $50 and it was a blessing yeah. and it went on for years and I used to write a little lead into the poem you know particularly if the poem was obscure and the housewives toiling over their stoves needed a little help I'd like a little remark to try and humanize it as they say. And I hadn't been asleep for four days when this happened. 
rehearsing two different plays, one in Harlem and one down at the Maxine Elliott and doing 16 radio shows a minute and living it up in between times, too, I may as well confess. And I came into that studio and was handed as the day's poem one of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's sonnets from the Portuguese, out of which I could make neither head nor tail. <laughs> and I remembered from having played in a play called The Barretts of Wimpole Street with Miss Cornell that there was a well-received joke made by Robert Browning, which was a real quote of his, but used in the play, in which he was asked the meaning of a poem, and he read it, reread it, and reread it, and finally said, when this was written, only God and Robert Browning knew what it meant, now only God does. <laughs> it's a good line. Great. So I thought I'd say that, because I knew I was going to read it, and the way I would read this poem would be Jabberwocky. So I said, well, then I told this little nice story to the housewives, and I said this, and what he said was, when this was written, only Brob and Gribbit Gribbit. <laughs> when Grobbit Gribbit. When this was written, only Grobbit Gribbit Gribbit. When Gris was Grobbit Grinning, now there were 20 account people in the projection room, and they began waving and turning purple and everything. And I just put down the script and said, good morning, ladies, and walked out of the studio and was never seen again. I never had the nerve to come back. That's the end of my career with cornstarch pudding. That was amusing. I think Orson was probably taking a lot of speed as well. I, you know, I don't know, you know what they were doing back then, but yeah. he, given the amount of work he was doing and just his work ethic, yeah, yeah he was yeah. he was to the gills, jacked up. Yeah, yeah, I think he was pretty much pretty messed up at that period uh and also from from reports of his behavior uh in those days he doesn't sound like was behaving terribly well you know there was yeah, there were some I mean, outbursts and things that sound like not merely him uh being creatively upset i think there's there a certain amount of the auteur you can throw at it yeah but yeah right. under that there is this he had and I think every young 20-something person who's trying to do more than they can conceivably do mm -hmm. hits that wall. And either you respect the wall or you kind of bang your head against it. I think he did yeah, a lot of Yeah, you just think you're invincible at that age. And I think that's what he what he did. Anyway, in 1938, he had, he's had a lot of successes on the stage. Uh, CBS came to him and offered him another sustaining show that would be a regular anthology series so every week it would be a different adaptation of some piece of literature or some work for the stage it be eventually was called the mercury theater which was the name of his theatrical company and the mercury theater of the air the very first episodes i don't think had a title when they went out specifically they were called first person singular for a few episodes, but I really? don't think that was ever mentioned on the air. Yeah, Orson was very proud of this idea that he used the first person singular for the first time on radio. Actually, you are you are absolutely correct. Yeah, first person singular, um, July 11th. It was actually right. called first person singular. I don't, I don't know. He sort of used first person sing singular, you know, people telling the story, the narrator telling the story with his own voice. But it makes usually I, that was just as a as a 
as a way of doing narration. So it know? looks like he goes through the first couple of shows with that, and on September 11th, it changes mm-hmm. to Mercury Theater on the air when he, when he does the Julius Caesar. But up until right. then, it's first person singular, and I can totally see. You know, that 20-something, I got this great idea. Mm-hmm. It's just going to totally define the whole gestalt of it. And then mm-hmm. after a while, they got tired of it. And Yeah, they just na- renamed it the Mercury Theater. Um, we have a clip from their production of Dracula, which Orson loved the book Dracula. He he contends that there was never a good version done on film. Yeah, well, we'll let him speak for himself at the end of this, but we'll yeah. have a clip from the show and then a clip, another clip from a Peter Bodanovich interview. So here goes. Now you're going to laugh at this. Dracula, nobody's ever made it. Nobody's ever really made it well. You're right. I don't mean well. Oh, you mean the- They've never paid any attention to the book. I did it I on the radio. That. I did it on the radio. It's the most hair-raising, marvelous book in the world. I didn't know. Oh, God, it's wonderful. They've never used anything from it. They haven't even opened the book. But it's it's a hair-raising book. And it's told by four people. It must be done with the four narratives, like the radio thing. Well, you did it that way. Oh, yes. I'd love to hear that. Oh, God, it was wonderful. Welcome to my house. I must have fallen asleep. The carriage had pulled up in the courtyard of a vast ruined castle. The coachman was nowhere to be seen. Welcome to my house. Come freely. Go safely. And leave something of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula? I am Dracula. Face was strong. Very strong. Aquiline. The mouth, so far as I could see under the heavy mustache, was fixed and rather cruel-looking with peculiarly sharp white teeth. Mm. You hear them, Mr. Harker? Uh, the wolves? The children of the night, as you say, Mr. Harker. The wolves. Listen. Mm. But now I will detain you no longer. You will find your room in readiness. And I advise you not to leave it. During the night. That was pretty great. Yeah, I mean, he, he was... like, like I, I preempted him, but he totally does lay out the, the thing for why Dracula was not done properly. In film. Yes. It makes yeah, perfect he, sense. Exactly. Well, continuing the horror theme. This is probably the thing that everybody knows about Orson Welles and his Jane Eyre? Years. The Jane Eyre production they did? Yes, Everyone that, knows that, right? That was horrible, man. Woo, this scary. <laughs> yes. On October 30th, right before Halloween, the Mercury Theater presented its infamous production of The War of the Worlds. As everybody knows there was widespread panic because it was done in the style of a news broadcast. And so people believed that Martians were really invading. That story goes back and forth. The more I read about it, um, if you look at Snopes, yep. they, uh, they, they say there was of... not widespread panic. Um, if you look at uh, some other reports, you'll see that the panic wasn't widespread, but there certainly were people freaking out. It's hard to get a line on how much actually happened. 
all those years ago. As the years went on, the stories and the recountings of things that happened that night Mm -hmm. proliferate and grow and grow. Well, I watched a a documentary recently that was uh, from French TV, and they had a bunch of interviews with people that looked like they were period interviews with, with people uh, who'd gone through this panic. Yep. And the more I watched, the more I realized they were all actors and it was all a modern day reenactment, but it was all these act. And you could, you know how you can tell when someone's not speaking extemporaneously, they're not a great actor. Yeah. Yeah. Where, you know, yeah. So, so it's really hard to, to, to understand what the aftermath was, well, the we'll talk a little cl- bit yeah. about the, the plan of the show, though. It's pretty clear. Um, it was uh, John Houseman and is it Howard Koch? Was that the writer? Yeah. Howard Koch uh, wrote the episode. Orson hated it. Orson got the script and, as usual, right up to the last minute was saying, no, we can't do it this way. We can't do it that way. You got to do it this way. But Koch and Houseman, I think, came up with – Houseman came up with the gimmick of making it a news broadcast – that that would and setting it in the United States. Yep. And the two of them timed it out really well. And here's why War of the Worlds ran against the Charlie McCarthy show, the Chase and Sanborn Hour, which was probably the most popular radio show at the time, which and still baffles me. It it is a strange phenomenon, isn't it? Having a ventriloquist dummy on the radio as the top radio show. Yeah, yeah. Then again, Charlie McCarthy was a strong character, and I think that's yes. why it works. Yeah, it, that, yeah. I mean, he's he's the equivalent of Kermit the Frog. You know, you accept that it's not a puppet, right? So um, Houseman Houseman knew that was his. Houseman foil. knew that was what they were up against. The audiences were ridiculously different the audience for charlie mccarthy was like 30 some 34 percent i think of the listening audience and the audience for war of the worlds was more like 3.4 you know there was like 10 times as many people listened to charlie mccarthy but they knew something that went on people tended to do when they listened to charlie mccarthy is when the musical numbers started people would retune the radio and see if they could catch up on a little news here or there. And so they timed it so that all the interesting moments on the show hit whenever a musical number was hitting on Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. So we have a clip of that and a little more of an interview with uh, Peter Bodanovich talking about the War of the Worlds. So here goes. A haunting we will go, a haunting we will go. <laughs> hey, Charlie, the word is haunting. Well, not on Halloween, it ain't. Thanks, Charlie, but we'll let Nelson Eddy do the same. And it's the rousing, rip-roaring song of the vagabonds. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth... Well, I always thought that uh, it was something, the, the, the reverberations of the War of the World broadcast 
the fact that a lot of people disliked you for, for what, what you had made fools of them. I don't think anybody did. Really? No. Well, wasn't there a hue and cry? Or yes. were they sheepish about it? Most of the hue and cry was made by the newspapers because it was a big chance to attack radio, which was taking the advertising away from them. Oh. Most people just thought it was funny. There were, of course, a lot of people who called up in tears and a few suicides and all that. Uh, but uh, basically, people thought it was uh, funny. Mm. No, I didn't suffer at all. The people who imitated it, one did in Chile and somebody did in France and somebody did in, I don't know, Ecuador, some other remote place. They all got put in jail afterwards. <laughs> and all I did was get picked up by Campbell's Soup. So even though Orson says in the clip that the Mercury Theater went from being a sponsorless program immediately after the War of the Worlds, it wasn't really until December that Campbell's Soup picked up the show. Yeah. Um, I think that negotiations probably started or something like that. It became the Campbell Playhouse was the new name of the show. And John Hausman had a nice quote. He said, I guess they figured if we could sell the end of the world, we could sell tomato soup. Even until his later years, and especially more into his later years, the War of the Worlds was, oh, oh of course, yes, always. And, but, oh, yeah, it was that all was me. The, yes, it was it, all but me. But it was, it was always him, and, and he knew it was going to change things forever. And I'm well, like, dude, yes. I'm sorry. No, you didn't. And that makes it even better yeah. that you just did yeah. this prank, and you, you kind of – you social engineered the radio listening public mm -hmm. to shock them on Halloween – that was exactly what he said at the end of the show was perfect. You know, we yeah. have we have just pranked you. We did it right. for the lulls. L O L K thanks bye. Yeah. And that was great. But then later on he builds this mythology around it, which is kind of like you didn't need to do that. It was good by itself. Orson was a pretty famous credit hog. He did try for years after to uh, claim authorship of that entire adaptation. Yeah. And he didn't he didn't write that at all. In fact, he didn't write anything really on the Campbell Playhouse or the Mercury Theater uh, or very, very little. It was all what he did was revise and direct. Yeah, And, that's, and that was his. And if you listen to that, um, go back and listen to the to the Julius Caesar one. He really does throw things in the air. And then when they come down, people are so confused. It does look like Orson cobbled this horrible thing together to make a great production where in actuality mm -hmm. if you took what you started with it was perfectly good it probably would have been a fine production if absolutely been directing it yes right but there's a certain genius in that chaos so i i can't i can't totally throw I'm it not, out i'm I mean, not yeah no his yeah. product speaks for itself but mm -hmm. yeah it, it's it's he wasn't just spinning genius from nothing he was working mm -hmm. with a rich tapestry of things to right. begin with and he so did the, the same with um, Citizen Kane. With, uh, with oh yeah, Hasman. he tried to he tried to claim credit for uh, Howard Koch's script for that as well. Yeah, years later. So but, it was December 9th that it became Campbell Playhouse. Right. Okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. And they did um, another horrible. They did another horror story. They did Rebecca. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. All all of the uh, the Campbell Playhouse. And uh, the Mercury Theater stuff is another great entrance point if you're uh, if you're new to old time radio. Those those are all really good productions, and, and they were you, done live in the studio, which is crazy. Considering Morton's directing methods, yeah, yeah. If you look about how he did it, and they did this every week, the burnout mm -hmm. rate must have been insane. The other thing mm -hmm. too is if you are a high school student or you know a high school student. 
these are amazingly good crib note type shows. You, <laughs> yeah. you, you have to right. read Mutiny on the Bounty. Listen to the Mercury Theater version of Mutiny on the Bounty. Right. You will yeah. get a good, solid understanding of the book. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll help you cheat on your exams right here. Yes, always. <laughs> yes. So, um, the next few years were pretty busy for Orson. Um, he did the Orson Welles show, which went under a half a dozen names. Oh, I should backtrack a little. Orson claimed to Bodanovich that he had the Mercury Theater was on the air for 11 years, which was ridiculous. He had, Again, he had yeah. a lot of different radio shows under a lot of different names, and some of them did the same stuff. Anyway, so he did the Orson Welles show, which was also called the Lady Esther show, Orson Welles and his Mercury Theater. He appeared on a quiz show called Information, Please, in 1942 uh, a couple of times. He did a show called Hello, Americans. Amazing show. Every Again, every high school kid should listen to it. Mm -hmm. It is a snapbook of geography and history. Mm -hmm. And then he did a really oddball show that... I think stands out in his career because he had been such, he had always been the pompous adapter of serious works of literature and great works of the stage. And then he did this show in 1944 called the Orson Welles Almanac, which was a variety show. I always say it's the show that he tried to be Bob Hope. He's yeah, I can see Bob Hope, but in, at least in the, the beginning of every episode, we'll start out with a comedy sketch yeah, and he's he's doing a lot of ad libs, and he's having a lot of fun, and he's okay. He's not bad at that role. So anyway, the show went on for a while, and it was pretty much divided in half because of the Second World War. The second uh, set of episodes, almost all of them are done in front of at a military base as a show for the for the military equivalent of a USO show. He very much got into supporting the war effort and the the guys fighting. Well, he he the, he couldn't he couldn't uh, fight because he had flat feet, so he was he was four F. So yeah. So but, what he did was he did a lot of support for. for and the, war. the the other thing this show and the radio show didn't do much to show it off, but he was always a closet and sometimes not so much closeted music, uh, magician. Yeah, he loved magic. Yes. And he used – they toured this show around, like you said, to army bases and stuff. And he would totally play up the magician act. It was the Mercury Wonder Show. So there was a yep. whole segment of magic that didn't go out over the radio because you can't really do that. But, um, well, who they knows? Put, I mean, they, they, they did a ventriloquist act on the radio. radio show. Yeah, so who knows? So he did that. And in the, the first few episodes, there was an interesting thing that Orson did. He was a huge fan of New Orleans jazz. He asked the owner of a record store called Jazzman Records in Hollywood, a woman named Mar Marley. <laughs> Marilly Morden. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what I'm up against. Uh, <laughs> to assemble an all-star band. And she did it, and uh, I'm going to let Orson just introduce the band because it's a pretty amazing lineup. Ladies and gentlemen, now it's time for some music. We bring you three minutes of jazz. Many of you listening have never heard it before. What you've heard are jazz ideas, flicked up by commercial arrangers and jazz musicians. 
Real jazz is only available on records unless you're willing to go out and look for it and don't mind late hours. It's worth the trouble. The hit tunes, hit arrangements, and hit bands may spoil your ear for it at first, but nobody who's ever made an honest effort to find out about it has ever failed to end up as a jazz enthusiast. The whole thing started in that good time, wide open, all-night carnival city which was New Orleans before the last war. Jazz bands playing the riverboats carried this new kind of music up to Chicago. From there, it spread all over the world and influenced all popular music and the greater part of what's called serious music. I'm not going to try to explain what it is, but I would like to point out that jazz is art for art's sake, if ever there was such a thing. It's music musicians play for themselves, for their own satisfaction, the way they like it. The men we've gathered in the studio to play jazz tonight are, by general acknowledgement, among the finest instrumentalists on earth. They are the great men of jazz, and their appearance together is a musical event. We bring you now what is probably the only existing jazz band. Experts will recognize these men when they hear them, but I'm proud to list their names. Mutt Carey, trumpet. Kid Ory, trombone. Clarinet, Jimmy Noon. Piano, Buster Wilson. Guitar, Bud Scott. Bass, Ed Garland. Drums, Zooty Singleton. They're going to play High Society. So we're going to play the rest of that. At the yeah, end it's a great piece. It's a it's a great piece, and it, it was really part of the revival of uh, what we probably call Dixieland jazz, but most people then called it New Orleans jazz or just yep. jazz. Like jazz purists thought that that was the stuff, you know. And he had he was. had a genuine love of that music and mm-hmm. a love for the musicians. He brought those guys up, and he. Would host them for lunches and do stuff with them. I mean, oh, he, he would. Very he would almost it. rather hang out with the musicians than the actors. I think at that yep. stage of his life, yeah, he really because uh, I think that was something that was a complete mystery to him. He was not a musician, and so he was just fascinated by it. You know, so that was very nice of him to get this all star jazz band because a lot of those guys hadn't been working uh, in music at all. There you were know, tales of the, one of the guys was working on his brother's chicken ranch or something. Not, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was Kid Not, not euphemism yeah, for chicken ranch, but an actual ranch with chickens. Yes, right. And as a gardener. And uh, Kid Ori was yeah. all that. So that was that was good that he got a little Indian summer for his career. So that was nice. Let's see what comes next. Oh, 1945, there was a show called This Is My Best, which was a 30-minute show. And it did not start as an Orson Welles show. Nope. It was a show that he took over. He made some guest appearances in the early episodes, and then I guess they offered the show to him, and it became an Orson show. I think the first one that was his was Hearts of Darkness. All right, that makes sense. I, I want to say that was the first one he took over fully as, like, I think he took over as producer and director and star. Mm-hmm. Like, he took over the whole on thing, yeah. Um, in 1946, uh, the Mercury Summer Theater of the Air, it was really similar to the Campbell Playhouse and the Mercury Theater of the Air, but it was a half-hour show, which meant that their adaptation of Around the World in 80 Days is hilariously breakneck. <laughs> I mean, yes. that is a show that is that is a, a novel that is nothing but picturesque, event exposition yeah yeah it's nothing but fast-paced events and in order to tell that at a half hour radio show orson even talks about how we're skimming ahead here 
because we don't have yep. a lot of time. And at that same time, this would be towards the end of the Second World War. Orson had been doing a newspaper column called the Orson Welles Almanac, just to confuse things even further. He's using the title of his radio show. Well, Orson did a lot of stuff like that to brand himself, you know? So sure, yeah. He if he was had a radio show and... called the Orson Welles uh, Radio Almanac, he'd do the Orson Welles Almanac as a newspaper column. This became a 15-minute spons- uh, radio show sponsored by Bill Lear, who was, and this is odd, he was the inventor of the car radio, which was called Motorola. the Motorola, like a That's Motorola right. in your motor car. The mo- so the brand name Motorola comes from that. He later invented the eight-track tape and the Learjet. But at the time, he was just this guy with a lot of money and sponsored this show. That, and it would just be his short essays on whatever subject Orson wanted to talk about at that moment. But, is, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Well, in 1946, there was a story about uh, soldier Isaac Woodward. He was black. He was mustering out of the U.S. Army. And who he was taken from a bus and beaten until blinded by a Southern police chief. And Orson grabbed a hold of that story and just like a bulldog and would not let it go. And here's Orson reading that the affidavit of... Isaac Woodward. Good morning, this is Orson Welles speaking. I'd like to read to you an affidavit. I, Isaac Woodward Jr., being duly sworn to depose and state as follows, that I am 27 years old and a veteran of the United States Army, having served for 15 months in the South Pacific and earned one battle star. I was honorably discharged on February 12, 1946, from Camp Gordon, Georgia, at 8.30 p.m. at the Greyhound Terminal, Atlanta, Georgia. While I was in uniform, I purchased a ticket to Winsboro, South Carolina, and took the bus headed there to pick up my wife to come to New York to see my father and mother. About one hour out of Atlanta, the bus driver stopped at a small drugstore. As he stopped, I asked him if he had time to wait for me until I had a chance to go to the restroom. He cursed and said no. When he cursed me, I cursed him back. When the bus got to Aiken, he got off and went and got the police. They didn't give me a chance to explain. The policeman struck me with a billy across my head and told me to shut up. After that, the policeman grabbed me by my left arm and twisted it behind my back. I figured he was trying to make me resist. I did not resist against him. He asked me... Was I discharged? And I told him yes. When I said yes, that is when he started beating me with a billy, hitting me across the top of the head. After that, I grabbed his billy and wrung it out of his hand. Another policeman came up and threw his gun on me and told me to drop the billy, and he dropped me, so I dropped the billy. After I dropped the billy, the second policeman held his gun on me while the other one was beating me. He knocked me unconscious. After I commenced to come to myself, he all would get up. I started to get up. He started punching me in my eyes with the end of the billy. When I finally got up, he pushed me inside the jailhouse and locked me up. I woke up next morning and could not see. A policeman said, let's go up here and see what the judge says. I told him that I could not see how to come out. I was blind. He said, feel your way out. He said, I'd be all right after I washed my face. He led me to the judge. And after I told the judge what happened, he said, we don't have that kind of stuff down here. Then the policeman said... He wrung my billy out of my hand. I told him if he didn't drop it, I'd drop him. That's how I knew it was the same policeman as had beat my eyes out. After that, the judge spoke and said, I fine you $50 or 30 days in the road. And I said I'd pay the $50, but I did not have the $50 at the time. So the policeman said, you have some money there in your wallet. He took my wallet and took out all I had. That was a total of $40 and took $4 from my watch pocket. I had a check for $694.73, which was my mustering out pay and soldier's deposit. He said to me, 
can you see how to sign this check? You have a government check. I told him no, sir. So he gave it back to me after that. Took me back and locked me up in the jail. The policeman did. I stayed in there for a while. And after a few minutes, he came and asked me if I wanted a drink of whiskey. I, if I took a drink of whiskey, he said I'd feel better. I told him no, sir. Didn't care for any. About 5.30 that evening, they took me to the Veterans Hospital in Columbia, South Carolina. One of the contact men came around one day and said to me they were going to take out a pension for me. I believe that the doctor who cared for me was named Dr. Clarence. I told him what had happened to me. He made no comment, but told me I should join a blind school. Sworn to me, it was the 23rd day of April, 1946. Given everything that's currently happening, this It's pretty is, timely, isn't it? Yeah. It's an amazing Some piece. Some things don't change, yeah. Nope. No yeah. matter how much you think. And mm-hmm. there's one point in the piece, because I played this for my younger son... Mm-hmm. And Orson does this bit where he says, um, it's not just what we're doing, it's what the generations of our generations of our generations yep. will be doing. And I turn to my son, I go, he's talking directly to you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> From 1946 to, to 2017, he's mm-hmm. talking to you. To you. That's why this was recorded. And right. the whole thing is, you can't sit on your butt, you have to keep doing what we're doing in the 40s. The yeah, right. And it was like... Oh, yeah, this doesn't ever stop. (laughs) Sure enough. (laughs) Yep. Well, Orson being Orson, um, he kept on that that specific story for the remaining three weeks of the show incessantly. He would uh, would dedicate about half of this 15-minute show to that story every week. And at a certain point, Bill Lear, the sponsor, said – I don't know what Bill Lear's deal was, whether he was a racist or whether he just didn't like controversy or... Well, at that which point... Is, which I is mean, in, a for, in, in and of itself a form of racism. But um, I don't know what the deal was with Bill Lear, but he insisted on being allowed to review the commentaries before they went out. And, and you tell Orson he's going to be you reviewed. You tell Orson he's going to have to submit to anything remotely resembling censorship and he would say no and that was pretty much the the last of orson's radio career and there were some major a couple more major things but that was that was the last of his radio career on a major network and it was also kind of the last of his stable years in America up until much right. later on in his life. He, he scooted yeah. to Europe. Well, that's why the last things that Orson did on radio took place elsewhere. Um, his appearances really slowed down after that. He did a couple appearances in 1947 and 1948. He didn't do anything at all in 1949. And he did one show on in 1950 about the united nations and that this was is the un a great show that that was it for the uh for the 1940s so from 1946 until 1950 it was pretty much that was the end of it but then there was this little final burst of creativity and he did two more radio series one of which he had a lot of fun with and cared about and the other one was completely perfunctory he didn't really care about from uh, 1951 to 1952, he did a show called The Lives of Harry Lime. It ran 52 half-hour episodes. It was produced by a company called Towers of London, which was a guy named Harry Towers and his mother, Margaret. It was the first radio drama that aired on the BBC that they didn't produce. And it's based on the character Harry Lime from the movie The Third Man. 
and yes, the series is. is a is a prequel to the third man and we have a clip that was the shot that killed harry lyme he died in a sewer beneath vienna as those of you know who saw the movie the third man yes that was the end of harry lyme but it was not the beginning harry lyme had many lives and i can recount all of them how do I know? Very simple. Because my name is Harry Lyme. As I walked to my hotel, I thought about La Fair Emerald. It cost me about $100 to bribe the custom official with champagne and a gold filigree pin. The reward left me with a profit of $270-odd plus a bump on the head and a hole in my suit. I'd lost the lovely green emerald and the lovely green eyes of Amy. The emerald didn't bother me too much, but Amy... Amy. She nearly interfered with the great romance of my life. My love for Harry Lyme. That was Orson really having a good time playing Harry Lyme. He loved this show. He like he, I, it he, was this was definitely the last creative burst for Orson on the radio because on the radio, yeah. He well, depending on what story you believe, he wrote six episodes of this himself. Yeah. Um, and I think what happened is he might have hired somebody to come up with stories and then he heavily adapted them. Um, as, he, as he does. As he often did. Because there's a story about the production company was offering $1,000 per script. So how could Orson turn Whoa. that down? <laughs> so, which is crazy money in the 50s, right, for a radio script. Orson... Uh, it's believed might have hired somebody for less money than that to write some scripts up. And then Orson doctored the hell out of them and made them his own work. So I don't know what the authorship is about. However, he did take one of the scripts from this series and change the names around and adapt it into a movie screenplay called Mr. Arkadin. Arcadden, yes. Mr. Arcadden. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't pronounce that wrong. Yeah, he really did love this radio series, and and he had a blast with it. I think this character to him was uh, Harry Lyme to Orson Welles was what Captain Jack Sparrow is to Johnny Depp. You know, yeah, it's a it is character it is that like, he loved, loved, loves to play. Yeah. So when he got a chance to do a prequel and play a complete antihero, which was pretty fairly rare in the 50s you know to have somebody anti-hero yeah yeah and to play it so convincingly and so winking and nodly yeah like yeah, it's you know he's really um yeah he's really playing with the part and having a lot of fun with it so and then he also gets to bring uh anton Karras's zither music every yeah, week right. you get to hear <laughs> every the zither. week we hear that zither i think that was a production thing because it was no there such was a, a popular big, movie yeah it was that zither there was a zither because there were fads all over the place but there was mm-hmm. a zither fad back around the time of harry lyme and mm-hmm. third man and stuff that you know that was a it was a draw Right. <laughs> to hear those. No. So it's a great series. Uh, it's sometimes called The Lives of Harry Lyme, sometimes called The Adventures of Harry Lyme, I think. 
That is correct. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're officially known as the Adventures of Harry Lyme, but right. they get called lots I of things. I think in England it was called The Lives of Harry Lyme, and in America, The Adventures of Harry Lyme. Big deal. Uh, it's just, like those English just go have a different to word it. it's, for it's everything. It's really quite good. I mean, there are some clunker is, yeah. episodes because there's 52, but Orson is always fun in this, and he's having a blast. So and I would can... put The Adventures of Harry Lyme right up there with the Bob Bailey, Johnny Dollars. Yeah, I was thinking as far that as myself that the other day. Quality. I was thinking... Yeah, it's it's quite good. On the other hand, he did another yes. series around the same time that is completely by rote, and that one's called The Black Museum. Uh, this one had 51 episodes. It was originally broadcast in Europe on Radio Luxembourg, of all things. It didn't reach the BBC until the 1990s. It was another I- Harry Towers production. Yep. It was syndicated, so we don't really have air dates on it, but it was around the same time as Lives of Harry Lyme, maybe a little afterwards. It was just a police procedural show that Orson narrated. And Orson's narration every week is damn near the same word-for-word thing with different murder weapons substituted into it. I would almost assume he was recording it. (laughs) <laughs> like he had some pre-recorded patter insert yeah. disc one here <laughs> just about the it. only little bit of his personality that he put into it was he did put his signature line in he had a signature line that he used all through his radio career was i remain obediently yours orson wells yes and at the end of this uh every episode he will say i remain obediently yours and he wouldn't mention his name but he would because he was supposed to be an anonymous narrator, I guess, sort of. I mean, he kind of plays it like a cross between um, the Crypt Keeper. Yeah, I was going to say Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. Tales and from the Crypt. And uh, I don't know. Uh, Rod Serling. Rod yeah. Serling, maybe a little bit. I don't know. The show is a little bit like Dragnet because so, it's, uh, it is a how catch em. And there's another show very much like this in old-time radio that I think Americans are probably more used to. Hells from Scotland Yard. Oh, okay, yeah. I think that one was an imitation of this, and I think it it had the same – some of the same stories. Very much so, yes. They cover some of the same ground. I think they rewrote the stories. uh, That could well be. I didn't – yeah. I I think I read somewhere, but they just – yeah, it was a a heavy plagiarization of that one. But anyway, um, the Black Museum, eh, I – I wouldn't say that's for anybody who's just coming to old time radio for the first time. Go for the lives of Harry Lyme, which is go for the lives of Harry Lyme. Spectacularly good. And then to sort of round out his career, because as I said, back in the twenties, when he was a student in, in school, he did an adaptation of uh, Sherlock Holmes. Um, In 1954, he came back to Sherlock Holmes. This time he played professor Moriarty in the final problem for the BBC. Beautiful casting. Beautiful, it was John beautiful Gilgood uh, was Ralph Richardson. Yeah. Ralph Richardson was Watson. And it was uh, another Towers of London production. So apparently he got along well with the folks from Towers of London. Here is a clip. You're very certain, aren't you, Professor Moriarty, that it is I who am going to die? There is no other course, unless you listen to reason. The situation between us, Mr. Holmes, is becoming an impossible one. It simply cannot go on. It won't, I assure you. For these past few months, I've been working to put an end to it all at the earliest possible moment. And you have very nearly undone the careful endeavor of a lifetime, sir. Or at least have seriously threatened it. No, 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 don't move. 
Your pistol again. I'm only taking out my memorandum book. I beg your pardon. I find it recorded here that you crossed my path on the 4th of January, Holmes. On the 23rd, you incommoded me. By the middle of February, I was seriously inconvenienced by you. At the end of March, I was absolutely hampered. And now at the close of April, I find myself placed in such a position through your continual persecution that I'm in positive danger of losing my liberty. That was certainly the end I had in view. Then you must drop it, Mr. Holmes. You really must, you know. Not till after Monday, Professor. You know as well as I do that you've made a slip, one single tiny slip. For years I've been aware of you, Moriarty, at the center of your organization, forgeries, murder cases, robberies. A thousand crimes were planned by you. A hundred agents carried them out. Your subordinates were caught sometimes, but you never were. And yet, you know, you made that slip, that single tiny slip. And you know as well as I do that it will destroy you. In three more days, my evidence will be complete. I shall have you exposed, brought to trial, condemned, and hanged. And you can do nothing whatever to prevent it. My will is inflexible. And so is mine. Three days, do you say? And before they're out, the end will come. One or the other of us must die, sir. That is Orson as Moriarty doing not quite an English accent, doing a proper... (laughs) Yeah, I think he's just clipping his words a little yeah. and trying to to enunciate clearly. He was kind of known for not being able to do fantastically accurate accents. Yeah. No, that wasn't his fault. No, in Lady from, in the movie Lady from Shanghai, his Irish accent is hilariously weird. You know, it sounds like a comic comic Irishman throughout. It's not not great. It sounds it sounds like one of those cops, you know, in a, in a <laughs> hard-boiled detective movie but he had a couple very minor radio appearances in in the in 1956 but i think they were just interviews or something he did um a show called tomorrow which Mm -hmm. was a nuclear war drama oh and he was the narrator okay so he did do a tiny bit more but i i like to think that he started his radio career with sherlock holmes yeah that's how i ended his career with sherlock holmes as with everything orson wells you get to make the reality you want for him right because orson was a notorious fibber right anyway when we were researching this episode one of the resources i came across and it's a really good one and if you're into orson pretty great place to start is wellsnet.com w-e-l-l-e-s-n-e-t dot com and we've we'll have a link to that in our show notes yep and we'll have links to all the shows all the shows yeah which we always try from to do. archive.org our unofficial sponsor archive.org <laughs> if it ever existed it will be on archive.org right um yeah I, I don't think we had to break our rule about that throughout this did we do we didn't use any clips that weren't on archive.org did we um we've done a couple from youtube videos you have to be able to get to it freely without wearing mm-hmm. it's it's got to be accessible because mm-hmm. this is history history yeah. shouldn't be behind a, a wall somewhere yep well, um, let's talk a little bit about your other podcast, Tom, because we mention this every week, and I want people to get into this. You've got a, a 101 
podcasts. <laughs> 20, 20 something. Yeah. 20 something podcasts ranging from cop shows to uh, Western comedies, to yeah. comedies, to so everything. The, the, the main idea behind it is every day, if you're subscribed to the podcast, you'll get shows broadcast from that day in history. So if you're listening to it on August 27th, you'll hear what was broadcast on August 27th. Mm-hmm. And there was a specific one just for Orson Welles. There's so much Orson Welles stuff we made. Oh, for Orson. Dan did the artwork for the cover. And it's just every day you'll get a little bit of what Orson Welles was doing on the radio that day in history. There's even the one that I that I particularly like, although I've pretty much blown through every episode now, is the uh, Fibber McGee and Molly, which is yeah. currently on summer hiatus because they never – did a show in the summertime that was created specific there's several works were created specifically for dan <laughs> dan said i would love to listen to blah 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 but i hate going to archives.org the website's a mess and, uh, yeah, and right. i'd be like i'm gonna make a podcast feed for you you put this in your podcatcher and right. you just listen and i just yeah and the nice thing I, the thing i always liked about the fibber mcgee thing is it's a very seasonal show you know, they're always yep. talking about what's going on in the in the spring or what's going on in the winter or whatever. Oh, sure. You'll and, get the Christmas shows around Christmas time. Yeah, you'll get the ice skating shows around December, you know. You'll hear Gene Shepard's July 4th show on July 4th. Right. You know, all mm-hmm. of that stuff. And there is one channel that has all the other channels folded into it. So if you are a masochist and you want to hear <laughs> – Want to hear what Tom's listening to in his house right now all day. I have a little FM transmitter that just continually plays whatever is in my podcast feed. So I will consider the podcast a failure if we're reduced to shilling a bunch of dumb things you don't want to hear about, particularly since every housewife already knows. You emphasize a bit in. The right reading is the one that I'm giving it. At the moment. What is it you want from me? In the depths of your ignorance, what is it? That was absolutely possible. Whatever it is, I can't say. I don't know what I'm up against. I think all they were thinking about was that they didn't want to. They were such pests. You did six last year, and by far and away the best, and I know the, the reason. The podcast is worth this.